Friends, welcome to a part two reading of Babette's Feast, a short story by Isaac Dennison. Chapter 7 The Turtle In November, Babette went for a journey. She had preparations to make, she told her mistresses, and would need a leave of a week or ten days. Her nephew, who had once got her to Christiana, was still sailing to that town. She must see him and talk things over with him. Babette was a bad sailor. She had spoken of her one sea voyage from France to Norway as one of the most horrible experiences of her life. Now she was strangely collected. The ladies felt that her heart was already in France. After ten days, she came back to Berlevec. Had she gotten things arranged as she wished, the ladies asked? Yes, she answered. She had seen her nephew and given him a list of the goods which he was to bring from France. To Martine and Philippa, this was a dark saying, but they did not care to talk of her departure, so they asked her no more questions. Babette was somewhat nervous during the next weeks, but one December day she triumphantly announced to her mistress that the goods had come to Christiana and had been transshipped there and on this very day had arrived in Berlevec. She had engaged an old man with a wheelbarrow to have them conveyed from the harbor to the house. But what goods, Babette, ladies asked. Why, Madame, Babette replied, the ingredients for the birthday dinner, praise be to God, they have all arrived in good condition from Paris. By this time, Babette, like the bottled demon of a fairy tale, had swelled and grown to such dimensions that her mistress felt small before her. They now saw the French dinner coming upon them, a thing of incalculable nature and range, but they never in their life broken a promise. They gave themselves into their cook's hands. All the same, when Martine saw a barrow loaded of bottles wheeled into the kitchen, she stood still. She touched the bottles and lifted one up. What is there in this bottle, Babette? She asked in a strange voice. Not wine. Wine, madame. Babette answered, no, madame. This is Close Vujo, 1846. After a moment, she added, from Felipe in Rue Montaigu. Martine had never suspected that wines could have names, and she was put to silence. Late in the evening, she opened the door to a ring and was once more faced with a wheelbarrow, this time with a red-haired sailor boy behind it, as if the old man had by this time been worn out. The youth grinned at her as he lifted a big, undefinable object from the barrel. In the light of the lamp, it looked like a greenish-black stone, but when it set down on the kitchen floor, it suddenly shot out a snake-like head and moved slightly from side to side. Martine had seen pictures of tortoises, and even as a child owned a pet tortoise, but this thing was monstrous in size and terrible to behold. She backed out of the kitchen without a word. She dared not tell her sister what she had seen. She passed an almost sleepless night. She thought of her father and felt that on his very birthday, she and her sister were lending his house to a witch's Sabbath. When at last she fell asleep, she had a terrible dream in which she saw Babette poisoning the old brothers and sisters, Philippa, and herself. Early in the morning, she got up, put on her gray cloak, and went out in the dark street. 
She walked from house to house, opened her heart to her brothers and sisters, and confessed her guilt. She and Philippa, she said, had meant no harm. They had granted their servant a prayer and had not foreseen what might come of it. Now she could not tell what on her father's birthday her guests would be given to eat or to drink. She did not actually mention the turtle, but it was present in her face and her voice. The old people, as had already been told, had all known Martine and Philippa's little girls, and they had seen them cry bitterly over a broken doll. Martine's tears brought tears into their own eyes. They gathered in the afternoon, and they talked the problem over. Before they again parted, they promised one another that for their little sister's sake, they would, on the great day, be silent upon all matters of food and drink. Nothing that might be set before them, but even frogs or snails, should wring a word from their lips. Even so, said a white-bearded brother, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. The tongue can no man tame. It is an, an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. On the day of our master, we will cleanse our tongues of all taste and purify them of all delight or disgust of the senses, keeping and preserving them for the higher things of praise and thanksgiving. So few things ever happen in the quiet existence of Berlevac Brotherhood that they were at this moment deeply moved and elevated. They shook hands on their vow, and it was to them as if they were doing so before the face of their master. Chapter 8 The Hymn On Sunday morning it began to snow. White flakes fell fast and thick. The small window panes of the yellow house became pasted with snow. Early in the day, a groom from Fossum brought the two sisters a note. Old Mrs. Leuvenhelm still resided in her country house. She was now 90 years old and stone deaf, and she had lost all sense of smell and taste. But she had been one of the dean's first supporters, and neither her infirmity nor the sleigh journey would keep her from doing the honor of his memory. Now, she wrote, her new nephew, General Lorenz Leuvenhelm, was, had unexpectedly come on a visit. He had spoken with a deep veneration of the dean, and she begged permission to bring him with her. It would do him good, for the dear boy seemed to be in somewhat low spirits. Martine and Philippa, at this, remembered the young officer and his visits. It relieved their present anxiety to talk of old happy days. They wrote back that General Lowenhelm would be welcome. They also called in Babette to inform her that there would now be twelve for dinner. They added that their latest guest had lived in Paris for several years. Babette seemed pleased with the news and assured them that there would be enough food. The hostess made their little preparations in the sitting room. They dared not set foot in the kitchen, for Babette had mysteriously nosed out a cook's mate from a ship in the harbor. The same boy, Martine realized, who had brought in the turtle to assist her in the kitchen and to wait at the table. And now the dark woman and the red-haired boy, like some witch with her familiar spirit, had taken possession of these regions. The ladies could not tell what fires had been burning or what cauldrons bubbling there before daybreak. Table linen and plate had been magically mangled and polished, glasses and decanters brought. Babette only knew from where. 
The dean's house did not possess 12 dining room chairs. The long, horsehair-covered sofa had been moved from the parlor to the dining room, and the parlor, even sparsely furnished, now looked strangely bare and big without it. Martine and Philippa did their best to embellish the domain left to them. Whatever troubles might be in wait for the guests, in any case, they should not be cold. All day, the sisters fed the towering old stove with birch knots. They hung a garland of juniper around their father's portrait and placed candlesticks on their mother's small working table beneath it. They burned juniper twigs to make the room smell nice. The while they wondered if in this weather the sleigh from Fossum would get through. In the end, they put on their old black best frocks and their confirmation gold crosses. They sat down, folded their hands in their laps, and committed themselves unto God. The old brothers and sisters arrived in small groups and entered the room slowly and solemnly. This low room, with its bare floor and scanty furniture, was dear to the dean's disciples. Outside its windows lay the great world. Seen from here, the great world in its winter whiteness was ever prettily bordered in pink, blue, and red by the row of hyacinth on the windowsills. And in summer, when the windows were open, the great world had a softly moving frame of white muslin curtains to it. Tonight the guests were met on the doorstep with warmth and sweet smell. They were looking into the face of their beloved master wreathed with evergreen, their hearts like their numb fingers thawed. One very old brother, after a few moments' silence, in his trembling voice struck up one of the master's own hymns. Jerusalem, my happy home, name ever dear to me. One by one, their voices fell in, thin, quivering women's voices, ancient seafaring brothers' deep growls, and above them all, Philippa, clear soprano, a little worn with age, but still angelic. Unwittingly, the choir had seized one another's hands. They sang the hymn to the end, but they could not bear to cease and joined in another. Take not thought for food or raiment, careful ones, so anxiously. The mistresses of the house, somewhat reassured by the hymns, the words came for the third verse. Wouldst thou give a stone, a reptile, to the pleading child for food? Went straight to Martine's heart and inspired her with hope. In the middle of the hymn, sleigh bells were heard outside. The guests from Fossum had arrived. Martine and Philippa went to receive them and saw them into the parlor. Mrs. Lowenhelm, with age, had become quite small, her face colorless like parchment and very still. By her side, General Lowenhelm, tall, broad, ruddy, in his bright uniform, his breast covered with decorations, strutted and shone like an ornamental bird, a golden pheasant or a peacock, in this sedate party of black crows. Chapter 9, General Lowenhelm. 
General Lowenholm had been driving from Fossum to Berlevac in a strange mood. He had not visited this part of the country for 30 years. He had now come to get a rest from his busy life at court, and he had found no rest. The old house of Fossum was peaceful enough and seemed somehow pathetically small after the winter palace. But it held one disquieting figure. Young Lieutenant Lowenholm walked in its rooms. General Lohenholm saw the handsome, slim figure pass close by him, and as he passed, the boy gave the elder man short glance and a smile, the haughty, arrogant smile which youth gives to age. The general might have smiled back, kindly and a little sadly, as age smiles at youth. If it had not been that he was really in no mood to smile, he was, as his aunt had written, in low spirits. General Lowenholm had obtained everything that he had striven for in life and was admired and envied by everyone. Only he himself knew of a queer fact which jarred with prosperous existence, that he was not perfectly happy. Something was wrong somewhere, and he carefully felt his mental self all over as one feels a finger over to determine the place of a deep-seated, invisible thorn. He was in high favor with royalty. He had done well in his calling. He had friends everywhere. The thorn sat in none of these places. His wife was a brilliant woman and still good-looking. Perhaps she neglected her own house a little for her visits and parties. She changed her servants every three months, and the general's meals at home were served unpunctually. The general who valued good food highly in life, here felt a slight bitterness against the lady and secretly blamed her for the indigestion for which he sometimes suffered. And still, the thorn was not there. Nigh, but an absurd thing had lately been happening to General Lowenhelm. He would find himself worrying about his immortal soul. Did he have any reason for doing so? He was a moral person, loyal to his king, his wife, his friends, an example to everybody. But there were moments when it seemed to him that the world was not a moral, but a mystic concern. He looked into the mirror, examined the row of decorations on his breast, and he sighed to himself, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The strange meeting at Fossum had compelled him to make out the balance sheet of his life. Young Lawrence Lohenhelm had attracted dreams and fancies as a flower attracts bees and butterflies. He had fought to free himself of them. He had fled, and they had followed. He had been scared of the family legend and declined her invitation to come into the mountain. He had firmly refused the gift of second sight. The elderly Lawrence Lohenhelm found himself wishing that one little dream would come his way and a gray moth of dusk look upon him before nightfall. He found himself longing for the faculty of second sight, as a blind man will long for the normal faculty of vision. Can the sum of a row of victories in many years and in many countries be a defeat? General Lohenhelm had fulfilled Lieutenant Lohenhelm's wishes and had more than satisfied his ambitions. It might be held that he had gained the whole world and that it had come 
to this, that the stately, worldly wise older man now turned toward the naive young figure to ask him gravely, even bitterly, in what he had profited somewhere, somehow, something had been lost. When Mrs. Lowenhelm had told her nephew of the dean's anniversary and he had made up his mind to go with her to Berlevec, his decision had not been an ordinary acceptance of a dinner invitation. He would, he resolved, tonight make up his account with young Lawrence Lowenhelm, who had felt himself to be a shy, sorry figure in the house of the dean, and who in the end had shaken its dust off his riding boots. He would let the youth prove to him once and for all that 31 years ago he had made the right choice. The low rooms, the haddock, the glass of water on the table before him should all be called into bare evidence that in their milieu, the existence of Lawrence Lowenhelm would very soon have become sheer misery. He let his mind stray far away. In Paris, he had once won an esteemed award and had been feted by the high French cavalry officer, princes and dukes among them. A dinner had been given in his honor at the finest restaurant of the city. Opposite him at the table was a noble lady, a famous beauty, whom he had long been courting. In the midst of dinner, she lifted her dark velvet eyes above the rim of her champagne glass and without words had promised to make him happy. In the sleigh tonight, he now all of a sudden remembered that he had then for a second seen Martine's face before him and had rejected it. For a while, he listened to the tinkling of the sleigh bells. Then he smiled a little as he reflected how he would tonight come to dominate the conversation round the same table which young Lawrence Lowenhelm had sat mute. Large snowflakes fell densely. Behind the sleigh, the tracks were wiped out quickly. General Lowenhelm sat immovably by the side of his aunt, his chin sunk in the high fur collar of his coat. Chapter 10, Babette's Dinner As Babette opened the door to the dining room and the guests slowly crossed the threshold, they let go of one another's hands and became silent. But the silence was sweet, for in the spirit they still held hands and were still singing. Babette had set a row of candles down the middle of the table. The small flames shone on the black coats and frocks and on the one scarlet uniform and were reflected in clear, moist eyes. General Lowenhelm saw Martine's face in the candlelight as he had seen it when the two parted 30 years ago. What traces would 30 years of Berlevec's life have left on it? The golden hair was now streaked with silver. The flower-like face had slowly turned into alabaster. But how serene was the forehead, how quietly trustful the eyes, how pure and sweet the mouth, as if no hasty word had ever passed its lips. When all were seated, the eldest member of the congregation said grace in the dean's own words. May my food my body maintain. May my body my soul sustain. May my soul in deed and word give thanks for all things to the Lord. 
At the word of food, the guests, with their old heads bent over their folded hands, remembered how they vowed not to utter a word of the subject, and in their hearts they reinforced the vow. They would not give it a thought. They were sitting down to a meal. Well, so had people done at the wedding of Cana, and grace had chosen to manifest itself there in the very wine as fully as anywhere." Babette's boy filled a small glass before each of the party. They lifted it to their lips gravely in confirmation of their resolution. General Lowenhelm, somewhat suspicious of his wine, took a sip of it. Startled, raised the glass first to his nose, then to his eyes, and sat down bewildered. This is very strange, he thought. Amontillado and the finest Amontillado that I have ever tasted. After a moment, in order to test his senses, he took a small spoonful of soup, took a second spoonful, and laid down his spoon. This is exceedingly strange, he said to himself, for surely I am eating turtle soup. And what turtle soup? He was seized by a queer kind of panic and emptied his glass. Usually, in Berlevec, people do not speak much while they were eating, but somehow this evening tongues had been loosened. An old brother told the story of his first meeting with the dean. Another went through the sermon, which 60 years ago had brought about his conversion. An aged woman, the one to whom Martine had first confided her distress, reminded her friends how in all afflictions any brother's or sister was ready to share the burden of another. General Lowenhelm, who was to dominate the conversation of the dinner table, related how the dean's collection of sermons was a favorite quote of the queen's. But as a new dish was served, he was silenced. Incredible, he told himself. It's Blinz Demidoff. He looked around at his fellow diners. They were all quietly eating their Blinz Demidoff without any sign of either surprise or approval, as if they had been doing so every day for 30 years. A sister on the other side of the table opened on the subject of strange happenings which had taken place while the dean was still amongst his children, and which one might venture to call miracles. Did they remember, she asked, the time when he promised a Christmas sermon in the village the other side of the fjord? For a fortnight, the weather had been so bad, no skipper or fisherman would risk the crossing. The villagers were giving up hope, but the dean told them that if no boat would take him, he would come to them walking upon the waves. And behold, three days before Christmas, the storm stopped. Hard frost set in, and the fjord froze from shore to shore. This was a thing which had not happened within the memory of the man. The boy once more filled the glasses. This time, the brothers and sisters knew that what they were given to drink was not wine, for it sparkled. It must be some kind of lemonade. The lemonade agreed with their exalted state of mind and seemed to lift them off the ground into a higher and purer sphere. General Lowenhelm again set down his glass, turned to his neighbor on the right, and said, But surely this is Vauvet Clicquot, 1860? His neighbor looked at him kindly, smiled at him, and made a remark about the weather. 
Babette's boy had his instructions. He filled the glass of the Brotherhood only once, but he refilled the general's glass as it was emptied. The general emptied it quickly, time after time. For how is a man of sense to behave when he cannot trust his senses? It is better to be drunk than mad. Most often, the people of Berlevec, during the course of a good meal, would come to feel a little heavy. Tonight, it was not so. The convives grew lighter in weight and lighter of heart the more they ate and the more they drank. They no longer needed to remind themselves of their vow. It was, they realized, when man has not only altogether forgotten, but has firmly renounced all ideas of food and drink that he eats and drinks in the right spirit. General Lowenhelm stopped eating and sat immovable. Once more, he carried back to that dinner in Paris of which he had thought in the sleigh. An incredibly rechargé and palatable dish had been served there. He had asked its name from his fellow diner, Colonel Galifay. The colonel had smilingly told him it was named Quilly and Sarcofay. He had further told him that the dish had been invented by a chef of that very cafe in which they were dining, a person known all over Paris as the greatest culinary genius of the age, and most surprisingly, a woman. And indeed, said Colonel Galifay. This woman is now turning a dinner at the Café Anglais into a kind of love affair, into a love affair of the noble and romantic category in which one no longer distinguishes between bodily and spiritual appetites. I have before now fought a duel for the sake of a fair lady, for no woman in all of Paris, my young friend, would I more willingly shed my blood. General Lovenhelm turned to his neighbor on the left and said to him, but this, this is NKE and Sarkofa. The neighbor, who had been listening to the description of a miracle, looked at him absent-mindedly, then nodded his head and answered, yes, yes, certainly. What else would it be? From the master's miracle, the talk round the table had turned to the smaller miracles of kindliness and helpfulness daily performed by his daughters. The old brother who had first struck up the hymn quoted Dean saying, the only thing which we may take with us from our life on earth are those things which we have given away. The guest smiled. What remarkable humans these poor simple maidens would become in this next world. General Lowenhelm no longer wondered at anything. When a few minutes later he saw grapes, peaches, and fresh figs before him, he laughed to his neighbors across the table and remarked, beautiful grapes. His neighbors replied, and they came onto the brook of a shawl and cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bear it, two upon a staff. Then the general felt that the time had come to make a speech. He rose and stood up very straight. Nobody else at the dinner table had stood up to speak. The old people lifted their eyes to the face above them in high, happy expectation. They were used to seeing sailors and vagabonds dead drunk with the crass gin of the country, but they did not recognize in a warrior that the intoxication brought about by the noblest wine in the world. Chapter 11, General Lowenhelm's Speech. 
Mercy and truth, my friends, have met together, said the general. Righteousness and bliss shall kiss one another. He spoke in a clear voice, which had been trained in drill grounds and had echoed sweetly in royal halls. And yet he was speaking in a manner so new to himself and so strangely moving that after his first sentence, he had to make a pause. For he was in the habit of forming his speeches with care and conscience of his purpose. But here in the midst of the dean's simple congregation, it was as if the whole figure of General Lowenhelm, his breast covered with decorations, were but a mouthpiece for a message which was meant to be brought forth. Man, my friends, said General Lowenhelm, is frail and foolish. We have all of us been told that grace is to be found in the universe, but in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. For this reason, we tremble. Never till now had the general stated that he had trembled. He was genuinely surprised and even shocked at hearing his own voice proclaim this fact. We tremble before making our choice in life, and after having made it, again tremble in fear of having chosen wrong. But the moment comes when our eyes are opened, and we see and we realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us, but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. Grace, brothers, makes no conditions and singles out none of us in particular. Grace takes us all and proclaims general amnesty. See, that which we have chosen is given us, and that which we have refused also and at the same time is granted to us. I, that which we have rejected is poured upon us abundantly for mercy and truth have met together and righteousness and bliss have kissed one another. The brothers and sisters had not altogether understood the general's speech, but his collected and inspired face and the sound of well-known and cherished words had seized and moved all of their hearts in this way. After 31 years, General Lowenhelm succeeded in dominating the conversation at the dean's dinner table. Of what happened later in the evening, nothing definite can here be stated. None of the guests later on had any clear remembrance of it. They only knew that the room had been filled with a heavenly light, as if a number of small halos had blended into one glorious radiance. Taciturn old people received the gift of tongues. Ears that had for years been deaf were opened. Time itself had merged into eternity. Long after midnight, the windows of the house shone like gold, and gold and song flowed out into winter's air. The two old women who had once slandered each other, now in their hearts went back a long way, past the evil period in which they had been stuck to those days of their early girlhood, when together they had been preparing for confirmation, hand in hand had filled the roads and round Berlevig with singing. 
A brother in the congregation gave another knock in the ribs like a rough caress between boys and cried out, you cheated me on that timber, you old scoundrel. The brother thus addressed almost collapsed in a heavenly burst of laughter, but tears ran from his eyes. Yes, yes, I did so, beloved brother, he answered, I did so. Skipper Halverson and Madame Opigarden suddenly found themselves close together in a corner and gave one another that long, long kiss for which the secret, uncertain love affair of their youth had never left them time. The old dean's flock were humble people. When later in life they thought of this evening, it never occurred to any of them that they might have been exalted by their own merit. They realized that the infinite grace of which General Lowenhelm had spoken had been allotted to them, and they did not even wonder at the fact, for it had been but the fulfillment of an ever-present hope. The vain illusions of this earth had dissolved before their eyes like smoke, and they had seen the universe as it really is. They had been given one hour of the millennium. Old Mrs. Lowenhelm was the first to leave. Her nephew accompanied her, and her hostess lighted them out. While Philippa was helping the old lady into her many wraps, the general seized Martine's hand and held it for a long time without word. At last, he said, I have been with you every day of my life. You know, do you not, that it has been so? Yes, said Martine, I know that it has been so. And, he continued, I shall be with you every day that is left to me. Every evening I shall sit down, if not in the flesh, which means nothing, in spirit, which is all to dine with you, just like tonight. For tonight I have learned, dear sister, that in this world anything is possible. Yes, it is so, dear brother, said Martine. In this world, anything is possible. And upon this, they parted. When at last the company broke up, it had ceased to snow. The town and the mountains lay in white, unearthly splendor, and the sky was bright with thousands of stars. In the street, the snow was lying so deep that it had become difficult to walk. The guests from the yellow house wavered on their feet, staggered, sat down abruptly, or fell forward on their knees and hands, were covered in snow, as if they had indeed washed their sins white as wool, innocent as little lambs. It was to each of them blissful to have become as a small child. It was also a blessed joke to watch old brothers and sisters who had been taking themselves so seriously in this kind of celestial second childhood. They stumbled and got up, walked on or stood still, bodily as well as spiritually, hand in hand, at moments performing the great chain of a beautiful Lanciers. Bless you, bless you, bless you like an echo of harmony of the spheres rang on all sides. Martine and Philippa stood for a long time on the stone steps outside the house. They did not feel cold. The stars have come nearer, said Philippa. They will come every night, said Martine quietly, quite possibly 
it will never snow again. In this, however, she was mistaken. An hour later, it again began to snow, and such a heavy snow had never been known in Berlevec. The next morning, people could hardly push open doors against the tall snowdrifts. The windows of the houses were so thickly covered with snow, it was told for years afterwards that many good citizens of the town did not realize that daybreak had come, but slept on till late in the afternoon. Chapter 12, The Great Artist When Martine and Philippa locked the door, they remembered Babette. A little wave of tenderness and pity swept through them. Babette alone had no share in the bliss of the evening. So they went into the kitchen, and Martine said to Babette, It was quite a nice dinner, Babette. Their hearts suddenly filled with gratitude. They realized that none of their guests had a single word about the food. Indeed, try as they might, they could not themselves remember any of the dishes which had been served. Martine bethought herself of the turtle. It had not appeared at all and now seemed very vague and far away. It was quite possible that it had been nothing but a nightmare. Babette sat on the chopping block, surrounded by more black and greasy pots and pans than her mistresses had ever seen in their life. She was as white and as deadly exhausted as on the night when she first appeared and had fainted on their doorstep. After a long time, she looked straight at them and said, I was once a cook at Café Anglais. Martine said again, they all thought it was a nice dinner. And when Babette did not answer a word, she added, We will all remember this evening when you've gone back to Paris, Babette. Babette said, I am not going back to Paris. You are not going back to Paris? Martine exclaimed, No, said Babette. What will I do in Paris? They have all gone. I have lost them all, madame. The sisters' thoughts went to Montier Hersant and his son, and they said, Oh, poor Babette. Yes, they have all gone, Babette said. The Duke of Morny, the Duke of Decaz, Prince Norishakin, General Galifay, Aurelin Scholl, Paul Daru, the Princess Pauline, they have all gone. The strange names and titles of people lost to Babette faintly confused the two ladies, but there was such an infinite perspective of tragedy in her announcement that in their responsive state of mind, they felt her losses as their own and their eyes filled with tears. At the end of another long silence, Babette suddenly smiled slightly at them and said, and how would I go back to Paris, madame? I have no money. No money? The sisters cried as with one mouth. No, said Babette. But Ten thousand francs, the sister asked in a horrid gas. The ten thousand francs have been spent, madame, said Babette. The sisters sat down for a full minute. They could not speak. But ten thousand francs, Martine slowly whispered. What will you, madame, said Babette with great dignity. A dinner for twelve at the Café Anglais would cost ten thousand francs. The ladies still did not find a word to say. The piece of news was incomprehensible to them. 
But then many things tonight, in one way or another, had been beyond comprehension. Martine remembered a tale told by a friend of her father's who had been a missionary in Africa. He had saved the life of an old chief's favorite wife, and to show his gratitude, the chief had treated him to a rich meal. Only long afterwards, the missionary learned from his own black servant that what he had partaken of was a small, fat grandchild of the chief's, cooked in honor of the great Christian medicine man. She shuddered. But Philippa's heart was melting in her bosom. It seemed that an unforgettable evening was to be finished off with unforgettable proof of human loyalty and self-sacrifice. Dear Babette, she said softly, you ought not to have given away all you had for our sake. Babette gave her mistress a deep glance, a strange glance. Was there not pity, even scorn at the bottom of it? For your sake, she replied, no, for my own. She rose from the chopping block and stood up before the two sisters. I am a great artist, she said. She waited a moment and then repeated, I am a great artist, madame. Again, for a long time, there was deep silence in the kitchen. And then Martine said, so you will be poor now all your life, Babette. Poor? Said Babette. She smiled as if to herself, no, I shall never be poor. I told you that I am a great artist. A great artist, madame, is never poor. We have something, madame, of which other people know nothing. While the elder sister found nothing more to say, in Philippe's heart, deep forgotten chords vibrated, for she had heard before now, long ago, of the Café Anglaise. She had heard before now, long ago, the names of Babette's tragic list. She rose and took a step toward her servant. But all those people whom you had mentioned, she said, those princes and great people of Paris you named, Babette, you yourself fought against them. You were a communard. The general you named had your husband and son shot. How can you grieve over them? Babette's dark eyes met Philippa's. Yes, she said, I was. Thanks be to God. I was. And those people whom I named, Madame, were evil and cruel. They let the people of Paris starve. They oppressed and wronged the poor. Thanks be to God, I stood up on a barricade. I loaded the gun for my menfolk. But all the same, Madame, I shall not go back to Paris. Now that those people of whom I have spoken are no longer there, she stood immovable, lost in thought. You see, Madame, she said at last, those people belonged to me. They were mine. They had been brought up and trained with great expense, with greater expense than you, my little ladies, could ever imagine or believe to understand what a great artist I am. When I did my very best, I could make them perfectly happy. She paused for a moment. It was like that. With Monsieur Papin, too, she said, Philippa, yes, with your Monsieur Papin, my poor lady, said Babette. He told me so himself. It is terrible and unbearable to an artist, he said, to be encouraged to do, to be applauded for doing his second best. He said, through all the world, there goes one long cry from the heart of the artist. Give me leave to do my utmost. Philippa, 
went up to Babette and put her arms around her. She felt the cook's body like a marble monument against her own, but she herself shook and trembled head to foot. For a while, she could not speak. And then she whispered, Yet this is not the end. I feel, Babette, that this is not the end. In paradise, you will be the great artist that God meant you to be. Ah, she added, the tears streaming down her cheeks. Ah, you will enchant the angels. Friends, it's hard to find words by way of response to um, sharing this rich feast of a story of Babette's Feast by Isaac Dennison with you all today. Before we go anywhere else, I invite you to linger, to just listen, to notice what's on your heart. It's often that the story outside will evoke the story inside. I know for me, I've read the story now many times, but something moved in my heart as I recorded it this time, deeper and more mysteriously than any time I've ever read it. I'm moved by the utter extravagance of generosity. I'm moved by a grace that gives us what we don't deserve a mercy that triumphs even greater than our own choices or lack thereof. I'm moved by the courage of a few that would give their life to something greater than themselves. I think in some ways I'm moved by the mystery of it all, that somehow in our best efforts, we always fall short. And in every shortfall, there's something and someone greater still that's always prevailing. I'm moved by the reality that God has the first word and God has the last word. And it's in that place that we alone can find our hope. Friends, what about you? What stirs you today, particularly in this Christmas season, the season of the incarnation, of God becoming man, of indwelling in the midst of everything and everyone that somehow falls short, and yet the indwelling that takes place in a story that's unfinished a story that is yet to be fully told. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for the imagery of the story. Thank you for the courage of hearts to risk stepping into places, geography, decisions, relationships that are uncomfortable, that require you to intervene, to interpret 
and to carry. Thank you, God, that you have the first word and you have the last. Thank you, God, that you always prevail, that you are here now, this day, this season, this year, these circumstances, and that you're inviting us to pause and to allow this story to access parts of our story that need attention, care, conviction, curiosity, that need noticing and wondering. Friends, I want to conclude this reading of Babette's Feast with 90 seconds for you to simply listen in to your own heart. What's stirring? What characters, what scenes, what pieces of the story are haunting you and are inviting you to become more curious about where God finds you today, what he's inviting you into, and why he's doing it? Let's take 90 seconds. Christ is risen, Christ has died, and Christ will come again. This is our great hope. This is our great reward. Let's live as if it were so. Friends, a very merry Christmas to you.